Well, things are definitely not back to normal, but I would like to go back to the Gospel of Luke and pick up where we left off before all this craziness began a few months ago. Uh, The last time that we were in the Gospel of Luke together, we were in Luke chapter 6, which is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount or a Sermon on the Plain, a plateau as it's described in Luke chapter 6. And this portion of scripture is Jesus teaching his disciples about what it is to be a part of the kingdom of God and and what that looks like to live as a disciple of Jesus, as a part of his kingdom. And this morning we begin in chapter seven, which is kind of a transition point in the gospel of Luke, because it's after this uh, significant uh, portion of Jesus teaching And then we see Jesus on the move again and beginning to go from town to town, teaching, uh, healing. But Luke 7 is significant in one important reason, and that is because we see here Jesus beginning to extend his ministry and his mission to the Gentiles. And that will become a theme in the Gospel of Luke, as well as in his second volume in the book of Acts of Jesus and the gospel beginning at Jerusalem, beginning at Judea, but then expanding, going beyond to the uttermost parts of the world, including even Gentiles who lived in Galilee. And so we see Jesus' ministry coming to Gentiles and and unlikely people here in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 verse 1 says, that when Jesus had finished saying all of this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the man who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Let's pray together. Father of mercy and grace, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ and for this gospel that is about him, about his life, his teaching, his ministry of compassion and mercy, and ultimately his coming to seek and to save that which was lost by giving his life as a ransom 
as a sacrifice for us, that we might be redeemed, that we might be claimed as your people, as your children, and given new life, and given the privilege of walking with you in fellowship, and ultimately of going to be with you forever and ever in holiness and righteousness. Father, we thank you for this gospel. We thank you for your word. And Lord, during this time, we pray that you would open our eyes and ears, our hearts and minds to receive this truth. Father, may your spirit implant it on our hearts. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. We have the tendency as human beings to think of ourselves better than we really are. In fact, we have the tendency to overestimate our abilities. We overestimate our wisdom. We overestimate our value judgments. We overestimate our intelligence. Most of us overestimate our own worthiness. In fact, it is the nature of sinful man to think of ourselves as better than we really are. And to think of ourselves as better than we really are in God's sight. Because we generally see ourselves as better than we really are, we're not looking at ourselves properly through the lens of reality. And sometimes not seeing reality can be dangerous. I read this illustration of a professional mountain climber. His name was Royal Robbins, and he was writing for Sports Illustrated, and he described one great essential of a good mountain climber. You would think strength, skill, uh, balance, all of these things. He said, no, the most important asset in mountain climbing is the ability to see things as they really are, to see things for reality. This is what he said, If we are keenly alert and aware of the rock and what we are doing on it, if we're honest with ourselves and our capabilities and weaknesses, if we avoid committing ourselves beyond what we know is safe, then we will climb safely. For climbing is an exercise in reality. He who sees it clearly is on safe ground, regardless of his experience or skill. But he who sees reality as he would like to be, as he would like to see it, may have his illusions rudely stripped from his eyes when the ground comes up fast. Seeing things as they really are. We struggle with that as human beings. The Gospel of Luke here in chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, gives us a framework for seeing ourselves rightly through the grace of God. And it's important in the realm of spiritual things that we see ourselves rightly that we see ourselves through the lens of reality as God sees us, not as we see ourselves. In this portion of scripture, Luke moves us to the next event in Jesus' life. And it says that he had entered a town called Capernaum. And most likely, um, this was right after Jesus had finished uh, his time of teaching and his Sermon on the Mount. And so he goes to this town of Capernaum, and there he encounters a man, a servant of a centurion, who comes to Jesus with a request. It says, There a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. 
So a centurion, which is an officer in the army, right? So an officer in the army, someone who had a hundred people under him. That's most likely where we get the idea of a centurion from. So he was a commander in the army. He had people under him. He was a man of authority. He was a man of position. And he was a Gentile, a Roman soldier stationed in that area near Capernaum. And he has a servant, someone who attended him, maybe someone else in the army, maybe just a servant who, who did work for him, carried things for him. But he is sick, even to the point of dying. And what's unusual about the centurion we see right off the bat is that he cares about this man. The centurion cares about his servant. It's not just another person. It's not a piece of property. He cares about this man who serves him. He cares about his well-being. And so he hears about Jesus. He hears the news of Jesus' miracles. And so he sends some elders from Israel to go out and meet Jesus to to give him this request. So it says in verse 3 that the centurion heard of Jesus, sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. Why would a Gentile ask elders of Israel to go and ask Jesus this request? Well, we see through the, the story that this man had a good relationship with the people of Israel, which also was unique for this time because the Israelites in general did not like the Romans being there. The Israelites did not like Roman occupation. They didn't like Roman soldiers and centurions around them. But this centurion is unique. He has a good relationship with the people of Israel, with the elders of the town. And so he asked them if they would go on behalf of him, and probably because they're Jews and he knows that Jesus is a Jew, maybe he thinks that Jesus will be more open to receiving the request if it comes from them than if it were to come from him directly. So he sends the elders on his behalf, and they come to Jesus, and it says that they pleaded with him earnestly because this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and he has built our synagogue. Now that raises a question, doesn't it? That phrase in verse number four caught my attention. And I think it's intended to catch our attention when we read this story. When the elders of the town go to Jesus and they say, this man deserves this. He deserves to have you do this because, and they list off some qualities of this man, which raises the question, who deserves the grace and the kindness of God? Who deserves the grace and the kindness of God? In the thinking of these elders of Israel, This centurion deserved Jesus' goodwill, his grace, his mercy, because of things that this man had done. And so they list a couple of things. This man is religious. He built us a synagogue. This man loves the nation of Israel. So he is a religious man. Should God's grace 
go specifically to people who are religious, who do religious things, or who have a, a lean toward that which is spiritual, spirituality. Does this man deserve this because he is religious? What about if he is generous? This man built us a synagogue. So he, he's religious, he loves the nation of Israel, but he's also generous with his resources. We know from uh, history, from Roman documents, that centurions, especially those that were uh, in significant posts, significant places, those that, that were higher up on the command chain, they made a lot of money. Some documents suggest that not only did they command 100 men, but it's possible they made 100 times what the average man made. So he was wealthy, but this man was generous with his wealth. He's religious, he's generous, and the elders of Israel say this man deserves this. This man deserves to have you do this. Does anyone deserve the grace of God? Does anyone deserve someone to receive God's kindness? Here's another question. Who doesn't deserve the grace and kindness of God? They said this man deserves this because of what he's done. He's religious. He's generous. He built our synagogue. But another question that arises from this text is who doesn't deserve the grace and the kindness of God? Because you see a contrast in this passage between the elders who approach Jesus and the way the centurion himself thinks about himself in relationship to Jesus. Because the elders come saying, this man is worthy. This man deserves. But then later on, when you see the message that they bring from the centurion, the centurion doesn't think that at all. The centurion thinks, I'm not worthy. I don't deserve this. I'm not even worthy to come into your presence. What makes this man unworthy? Maybe because he's a Gentile. Maybe he thinks, I'm not a Jew. I'm a Gentile. I'm not worthy to come before this man to ask this request of him. Maybe that's why he sent the elders of Israel to go on his behalf. I'm not worthy because I'm a Gentile. Maybe he thought of himself as not worthy because he was a centurion. He was a man of warfare, right? He had blood on his hands. He's a soldier. So he sees himself as unworthy, maybe because he's a Gentile, maybe because he is a soldier, a centurion. But he expresses his unworthiness in verse 6 through these messengers says Jesus went with them and he was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends, messengers to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. So there's a direct contrast there, isn't there? The elders who went to Jesus said, this man deserves to have you do this. But when Jesus was on his way, he sent a messenger out and said, I don't deserve this. I am not 
worthy to come into your presence. So who's worthy to receive the grace and kindness of God? Who isn't worthy to receive the grace and the kindness of God? I think the answer that comes to us from not only this passage, but from the scriptures is none of us are worthy, right? None of us are worthy. None of us are worthy. It doesn't matter how religious we are. It doesn't matter how generous or charitable we are with our resources. It doesn't matter how much, how many religious things we do like going to church or doing religious ceremonies, like getting baptized or communion. None of those religious things matter. The good deeds that we do, they do not matter. None of us is worthy. But there's also another way of looking at this, and that is that some people see themselves as too far beyond the reach of God's grace. They see themselves as unworthy, which is good, which is right, which is humble. But maybe they, they see themselves as too sinful, as too far gone, irredeemable, unsavable. And what this passage shows us also is that no, not only are we not worthy, but we can be made worthy by the grace of Christ. And so none of us are worthy, but also true, none of us are beyond the reach of God's grace. Here's the reality of it is God's grace ignores merit completely, doesn't it? God's grace ignores merit completely and finds the most unlikely sinners. God's grace ignores merit and finds the most unlikely sinners sinners. And this centurion is an example of that. This centurion is one that you wouldn't normally think he would be a candidate for the ministry of Jesus. Because Jesus' primary mission was to his own people, wasn't it? He went to Judea. He went to Galilee. He went to his own hometown, Nazareth. He went to his people. And so you think this man is not really a likely candidate for the ministry of Jesus. And yet God's grace finds him a Gentile, a centurion. It's interesting that this is not the only time. In fact, there are a few throughout the Gospels and even in the book of Acts where you see a centurion positively responding to who Christ is and his message. You see a centurion after the crucifixion of Christ, after all the events that he saw, he says, surely this man was the son of God. There are several examples of centurions, and it's interesting because they are ones whom you would think these are not likely candidates. These are soldiers. These are people who have killed people. They're not worthy of God's grace, and yet God's grace finds them. They're outside of Israel. They're foreigners. They're strangers. They're on the outside looking in. And yet God's grace finds them. God's grace brings them in. God's grace ignores merit and finds the most unlikely sinners. Verse 7, this man expresses tremendous faith. He says, I'm not worthy to come into your presence. Don't even bother coming. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority 
with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. This is amazing faith, isn't it? Jesus even says so in the passage. This is amazing faith. This man believes who Jesus is. He believes in his power. He believes in Jesus' authority. He believes in him so much that he believes that Jesus doesn't even have to physically come and be present with his servant in order to affect his healing and his recovery. Just say it. This man is saying, I know how some, how authority works. I know how it works because I'm a man who has authority. I'm also under authority. I have people over me, but I have people under me. If I tell someone come, he comes. If I tell someone go, he goes. It's because I have authority and he follows it. So what he's saying to Jesus is, I know you have this authority. I know you have this authority over this disease, over nature, over everything in the physical realm. And that your voice, your powerful healing hand is powerful enough to heal even from a distance. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus heard this and he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Contrast that with Luke chapter four. Because in Luke chapter four, Jesus is in Nazareth. He's in his hometown. And what happens in his hometown? They reject him. His own people, the Israelites, the Jews, the chosen people of God, his own hometown people that that knew him, they reject him. They do not believe. And now here is a man who is not an Israelite. He's a soldier and he has faith. And not just faith, but Jesus says amazing faith. Amazing faith. I've not seen faith like this in Israel, among God's people. Unlikely sinners who are beneficiaries of God's grace may display amazing faith. Unlikely sinners like this man, like this centurion, who are beneficiaries of God's grace may display amazing faith. And what is so amazing about this man's faith? Well, what makes this man's faith amazing is first, he was a Gentile. So he's from the outside looking in. He was more than likely raised without the benefit of training in God's truth and God's word. Also, he was a soldier, not just a soldier, but a man of influence and position, not one that we would normally think would come under the humility of a man like Jesus. He's also wealthy. And what did Jesus say about people who were wealthy? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So this man is an unlikely candidate in a number of respects. He's a Gentile. He's a man of leadership and influence, not generally one of humility. He's also a man of wealth. We'd be tempted to put his hope and, and identity in that wealth. But God's grace finds him and creates in him 
amazing faith. Such faith that he says to Jesus, just say the word and I know my servant will be healed. And that's exactly what happened because the men who had been sent from the centurion, they returned to the house and found the servant well. He was healed. This man's hope, this man's faith, this man's confidence in Jesus' authority was well-founded. Jesus said the word and his servant was healed. This story obviously teaches us about the power and the, the might of Jesus Christ as the son of God who can heal disease. But I think this story in particular is drawing our attention to this centurion and the way that he interacts with Jesus and the way that he interacts with the grace that has been shown to him. And we see that God's amazing grace produces amazing faith in people and amazing faith. What is, what is characterized by amazing faith? It simply trusts. It simply trusts and submits to the Lordship of Christ. This man believed he trusted Jesus. I believe you can do this. And in humility, in submission, he recognizes the authority, the lordship of Christ, doesn't he? I trust you. I humbly submit before your position. I'm not even worthy to come into your presence. Amazing faith simply trusts and humbly submits to the lordship of Christ. Faith begins when you see yourself as unworthy before God and you see Jesus as the Lord and Savior who is all worthy. The elders from the town said, this man deserves this. But the centurion said, I don't deserve this. And that's what revealed faith. That's what revealed the fact that God's grace had come to him and amazing faith had been born in him And he is able to say, I am not worthy. I don't deserve this. But Jesus, you are worthy. You are powerful. You are amazing. That's where faith begins. When we see ourselves as unworthy, but we see Jesus, the Lord and Savior, as all worthy. Where does faith like this come from? It comes from God, doesn't it? When we think of the word amazing, we normally think of grace, don't we? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And it is amazing grace. Because it's amazing grace that can produce amazing faith like this. Jesus, for him to respond the way that he did in verse number nine, I've not seen faith like this, not even in Israel. Where can amazing faith like that come from? It can't come from us. It can't come from inside of us. It's not natural to us. Amazing faith like this can only come from God's amazing grace. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that, even the faith, that not of yourselves, but it's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. God's amazing grace produces amazing faith. And so what is this passage teaching us? Simply this, amazing grace produces amazing faith. 
in unlikely sinners. Amazing grace produces amazing faith in unlikely sinners. Just a couple of applications for us to think about. One, we need faith like this man had faith. We are believers. We are believers who profess the name of Christ here in this room today. We need faith like this man had faith. He believed in the sovereign, omnipotent power of God. He believed in the sovereign, omnipotent power of Jesus. That Jesus could heal anywhere at any time, no matter the problem. Do we believe that our God is that powerful? Do we believe that our God is that strong? Do we believe that God still heals through prayer? Do we believe this way? We need to have this kind of faith and we need to pray for God to grant us this kind of faith, to strengthen our faith, to pray as the disciples prayed, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. And the other application is we need to realize that faith shows up in unexpected places. Faith shows up in unexpected places. And I think that's one of the main reasons why this story is here at this point in the Gospel of Luke, to remind us that God's grace produces faith in unlikely sinners. It can pop up in unexpected places. If we're not careful, we can fall into a a little Christian bubble. And, And we can without really trying to, we can fall into the mindset of the elders of Israel who came to Jesus. Of, well, that person looks like a good candidate for Christianity. He's clean cut, you know, he's got a good job. He's an upstanding moral person. That looks like someone who might be interested in church and Christianity. But then we see someone else, maybe who's down and out, maybe someone who's jobless, who is a little rough around the edges and, and their life is not going very well and they've made some bad choices and we say, I don't, I don't think God's grace can find that person. We've got it all backwards, don't we? We've got it all backwards. We've, we've got it all distorted because God's grace doesn't work like that. God's grace doesn't go to the people that we think deserve it or are worthy. And God's grace doesn't necessarily pass over the people that we think are unworthy. God's grace finds whom he wills to find, doesn't it? That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that not many mighty are chosen. Not many wise, but God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound and to shame the wise. So let us not fall into the trap of understanding grace in terms of deserve of merit, either someone who deserves it or we think someone who doesn't deserve it because God's grace is powerful enough to save anyone, but it's also sovereign enough to overlook someone who is self-righteous and who sees themselves as fully capable in themselves of earning their way to God, a moral upright person. As Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, the spirit blows where he wants to blow. You don't know where it's going. You can't tell where it's coming from. All you can see is what it does in the lives of people. When God gives them new birth, they're born again. 
Here is a man, a Roman centurion, a rough-around-the-edges soldier. God's grace found him. The spirit wind blew through his heart and opened his eyes to see who Jesus was, and he believed him. And so God's amazing grace produces amazing faith in unlikely sinners. I am glad that God's grace has found me. I am glad, I'm glad that God's grace has found you. And if you're not yet a believer in Christ, I pray that God's amazing grace will also find you. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the way that you ministered through your Son, the Lord Jesus. We are grateful for his ministry of compassion that did not overlook the needs of people. He was concerned about them. He was concerned about this centurion's servant. He was gracious and showed compassion and healed him. We're grateful for the sovereign power of your son, the Lord Jesus, who exercised dominion, authority over the physical realm, over the the realm of medicine and illness and healed this man, even from a distance. We thank you, Father, for the grace of Jesus that finds unexpected people in unexpected places and awakens within them saving faith. We thank you for the faith of the centurion that you called by your grace. And we thank you that today you are still calling people by your grace to faith in Jesus Christ. So Father, may you continue to do that work among us and call out from among our community those who are to be your children. Call them, Father. May they hear your voice. May they follow you and believe. Awaken within them saving faith, amazing faith. Father, we thank you for all that you have done and are doing in and through us. Thank you for your grace, Father. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.